Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles for you today, so let's get started. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, Science Focus wants you to know that there are seven ways cloning is already happening. Mm. Oh, like we're living with it and we don't know it. Like herpes. (laughs) You know, that's a troublesome statement, but so is the cloning that's already happening. So we're going to let that pass here. Yeah. (laughs) Animals from pets and livestock to even working dogs and wait for it extinct species are being cloned for a variety of purposes. Oh, good, because that never (laughs) works out poorly. Like, we know that's okay. Well, the author Helen Pilcher is quick to note that copying animals from their genetic material is causing problems as quickly as it's solving them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, considering that it's been almost 25 years since the most famous clone on Earth, Dolly the sheep, was Mm -hmm. born on a farm in Scotland, a lot's happened since then, right? Mm -hmm. The article cheekily notes, it was one small step for lamb and one giant leap (laughs) for lamb kind. Somebody was very proud of that line, I'm sure. Fantastic (laughs) pun. That's right. Kudos to you. (laughs) Let's take a look at what we're already doing. So endangered animals, yes, we are already cloning them. In August 2020, a healthy clone of the endangered Shulvaskis, which is spelled P-R-Z-E-W-A-L-S-K-I, the Shulvaskis horse, is a native to the steppes of Central Asia, and they are the last truly wild horse species. Only about 2,000 remain. But they lack essential genetic diversity because they've all descended from just 12 wild-caught individuals. So, yeah, we're looking at a really narrow scope here. The little foal that was cloned was called Kurt, (laughs) and it was cloned using 40-year-old frozen cells from a stallion whose genes are not well represented in today's population. And because Kurt is genetically identical to the stallion, the hope is that when he grows up and breeds, he can restore this lost genetic diversity via his descendants. Mm -hmm. We have cloned other wild species, including the coyote, the African wildcat, and a rare Southeast Asian cow called the Bantang. But conservationists oppose cloning because they see it as an unproven, expensive distraction from tried and tested conservation methods like protected areas right. and anti-poaching initiatives. <laughs> Just don't kill them in the first place. <laughs> That's know, a little we weird. Can... That you said coyotes are endangered. I had no idea. I thought coyotes were like well, everywhere. These are other wild species, to be fair. So those okay. are not necessarily... Special coyotes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no idea why we might be cloning coyotes, especially when places in the U.S. are... Yeah, there's a problem for... with them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there are definitely more tried and true tested methods like, you know, don't destroy the areas that they need to live in and stop mm-hmm. killing them for fun. But that was an endangered animal. So it's not necessarily extinct. But let's get to the extinct animals, yeah. too. <laughs> the article is very quick to note... Not dinosaurs, so right, put your right. Jurassic Park fanboy hats to the side here. For and now. that's because, <laughs> at least for now, the article notes that dinosaurs are off limits because their DNA is too long gone. Mm-hmm. But looking at more recently extinct animals like the woolly mammoth, those could theoretically be on the cards to clone. All that is needed, and they have all in quotes here, is a source of DNA from maybe the cells in a frozen carcass or even a museum specimen. 
and a closely related living species to help nurture the cloned embryo. And so in the case of the woolly mammoth, this would mean transferring a clone into the womb of a surrogate Asian elephant. Mm-hmm. There's your problem already. The Asian elephants are endangered. So it's a major sticking point for critics who also question the value of the de-extinction of species whose natural habitats disappeared a long time ago. Like maybe we do get over the hurdle of using a surrogate that's already endangered. Now where are you going to put it? A zoo? Is that really what we want to be doing here? Right. You're just <laughs> birthing them for the sake of sticking them somewhere. Yeah. Exactly. So advocates of this, however, are suggesting that certain animals that they're dubbing the keystone species could engineer their own ecosystems. So maybe this could be a case for bioengineering and ecology Mm -hmm. that is more hospital to other life. But the hot topic for number three on the list here is pets. Right. At least three pet cloning companies currently exist. And hey, if you've got a spare 40 grand around, they can create a genetic replica of your beloved dog or cat. Singer Barbara Streisand and fashion designer Diane von Furstenberg have already bought clones of their pet dogs, for example. But of course, this practice is fraught with ethical concerns. Oh, yeah. They cite this one cloning advertisement from the Chinese company Synagene in which a grieving pet owner finds solace when a guardian pooch angel beams her doe-eyed ghost dog back to earth in new puppy form. And it's a carefully choreographed tearjerker, but cloning cannot guarantee to produce faithful lookalikes, let alone animals with identical personalities, that classic nature versus nurture situation, right? And when people are faced with losing a pet, they're really vulnerable. And jumping into that abyss and saying, we can fix it for you. You don't have to say goodbye is ethically fraught, right? (laughs) Right. It's not going to give you the closure you wanted, and it's not going to be the pet you had, and now you've just gone and created this Franken-Doll. Yeah, you've tainted the memory, or at least, you know, evolved it into something you can't really necessarily control. And Mm -hmm. not only that, cloning is a notoriously inefficient process, regardless of whatever species we're talking about, because it takes multiple dog surrogates to achieve a single successful pregnancy and dozens of cloned embryos to achieve a single healthy puppy, which means dogs die as bundles of cells in the culture dish, as embryos in the womb, and more rarely as puppies after birth. So it's creating a whole canine underclass that's invisible. And why would you go down this route when there are millions of deserving dogs in shelters? Right, that need homes already. Yeah, absolutely. Regardless, some of the companies that clone pet dogs also clone working animals like drug detection dogs. Hmm. Biologist Dr. P. Olaf Olsen at the Abu Dhabi Biotech Research Foundation in South Korea says that's the number one thing we're doing with dog cloning. The company is also known as Suam Biotech, and they've already produced hundreds of canine clones, and many are already in active service, for example, at Seoul's Incheon Airport. Hmm. The idea is to produce animals that are genetically predisposed to learn well, not necessarily sniff well, because Hmm. it takes time and money to train a sniffer dog. But even with the best training and the brightest animals, only around half of conventionally bred dogs manage to qualify. That being said, the clone dogs do surprisingly well. About 80 to 90% end up going into service. And Hmm. they've been told multiple times that the clones respond better to training. So in this case, the method has become a way to minimize what they call doggy dropouts and reduce costs. (laughs) Well, but like you said, they're still dropping out. They're just dropping out at the embryo stage rather than at the, oh, you failed the sniff test stage. (laughs) Possibly. It it also could be, you know, even though they're genetically predisposed to learn well, sometimes they may, I don't know, have the will to be like, meh. 
I'd rather just play around. That's this right. Feels They're like rebel a lot dogs. Of work. <laughs> you never know. But only 10% as opposed to 50%. Although I would like to think that the placement of the quote unquote doggy dropouts is still going to be pretty high, right? <laughs> yeah, they're still very smart. They're just not smart yeah. enough to be drug yeah. sniffing dogs at the biggest airport in the world. But yeah, exactly. Not bad. Yeah. So for second to last, I think we've got this kind of alarming subhead. You might soon be eating clones. Now, we've talked about lab-grown yeah. meat in previous episodes where, you know, it's come from an animal originally, but then it just becomes kind of tissue propagation. But in China, where demand where prime quality beef is rocketing, another cloning company thinks customers will eat cloned beef. Are they growing an entire cloned cow or are they just somehow cloning only the shank part of it or whatever? The whole cow, man. Yeah, this is not lab-grown beef. This is just the full animal. Boya Life Genomics works with the Abu Dhabi Biotech Research Foundation. They are currently building a $30 million cloning facility in the coastal city of Tianjin, where it plans to clone some of the world's finest beef cattle. And the goal is to start producing 100,000 cloned cattle embryos annually, and then increase that to a million. Sure. Gotta have goals. <laughs> The firm hopes eventually to be responsible for up to 5% of China's premium slaughtered cattle. And by scaling production up, they're hoping to bring the cost of cloning down. So I guess this is a quality thing again, because you're still raising the thing from birth. You're still having to oh, yeah. all those, those work hours of feeding it and taking care of it and raising it. But I guess it's more delicious beef and they don't want to give up that most delicious cow that they just killed. Exactly, exactly. I, I remember hearing rumors, and they may be true, about Kobe beef being sort of like the prized beef where they actually massage mm -hmm. the cows to get that muscle tone all tender or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So apparently this is an alternative, but definitely still kind of looking at the upper crust demographic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This isn't cheap beef regardless. <laughs> no, we're looking at the luxury demo and, you know, as Barbara Streisand and Diane von Furstenberg have already <laughs> proven, they'll pay a premium for, for cloned animals. Yeah. Maybe not necessarily to eat, but we'll see. I was imagining Barbara Streisand <laughs> eating her dog just then. That was what was going through my mind. <laughs> Another interesting currently available cloned animal technology, you can already buy online if you were so inclined, semen from cloned stud animals. Mm. <laughs> yeah, for, for fertilizing. That makes sense. Yeah. Exactly. For breeding purposes. They cite as an example, this naturally conceived bull that was so buff, he became one of the most prolific sires of the Angus cattle breed. And hilariously, his name was Final Answer. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> I know. It was almost prophetic the way they did this. And during his life, he produced more than 500,000 units of semen, which were used to father hundreds of thousands of offspring via artificial insemination. And cloning is already relatively routine in the cattle industry. And so when Final Answer entered his twilight years, breeders made a copy. And in 2014, when Final Answer finally died, Final Answer 2 took over. <laughs> and this makes me think of a, a conversation I had with my husband, who's an audio engineer. And the joke is that the file names are always final, final, final. No, really, this is the final. Right. And then super, having... super final. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just don't call it final, y'all. Yeah, never um, use that word. <laughs> Regardless, Final Answer 2's sperm is no different from that of the original, and now a single shot retails online for around 
22 bucks. Hey, you could get a piece of Final Answer, too. That's amazingly cheap, given $40,000 for a dog. Yeah. Hundreds of other similarly valuable cattle have also already been cloned. So the technique here is being used almost as an insurance policy. As agricultural geneticist Allison Van Eneman from the University of California Davis says, having an heir and a spare is not a bad concept. (laughs) It looks like everybody's getting in on the rhyming and the pun game here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if we're talking about like an ethically fraught practice, we might as well inject some levity into it. That's right. right. (laughs) Inject is another good word there. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, Next link. Next link. All right. Well, Kate Wheeling at Smithsonian Magazine has brought us a brief history of peanut butter. Ooh. And the first fascinating fact that my ethnocentric little brain did not realize is apparently peanut butter is a quintessentially American food. Other countries just really? don't eat it. Yeah, I had no idea. I was like, of course everybody eats peanut butter. They have a quote from Anna Navarro, who's a Nicaraguan-born political commentator. She told an NPR reporter in 2017 that she knew she had fully become an American when she realized she loved peanut butter. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, it's not it's not a thing anywhere else. But as of 2020, nearly 90% of American households consume peanut butter. And veteran food critic Florence Fabricant called peanut butter the pate of childhood. Huh. Ironically, China and India both grow more peanuts than we do, but America is the one eating them. It was not strictly an American invention, as the Incas were grinding peanuts several hundred years ago, but the practice pretty much disappeared with them, and it wasn't until the late 1800s that it suddenly reappeared in North America. Now, the article credits John Harvey Kellogg, the self-certified health guru of Kellogg's cereal fame, who did indeed file a patent in 1895 for a food compound that involved boiling nuts and grinding them into an easily digestible paste. However, the comments section on this article went a little nuts, haha, with uh, <laughs> people pointing out that actually the Canadian Marcellus Gilmore Edson filed a similar patent nine years earlier in 1884. And the reason Kellogg was granted his own patent was because Edson's process specified using roasted peanuts, while Kellogg's was meant for a variety of raw nuts. And Edson's paste also wasn't meant to be eaten directly. It was just an intermediary step in the making of a peanut candy that he'd invented, all of which was apparently enough of a difference for the patent office. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and the article, like the comments on this article were crazy. At another point in the article, they just casually mentioned the inventor of the sliced bread machine. And a ton of the other comments were like, actually, this other guy did it first, but his prototype was destroyed in a fire in 1912. <gasps> so clearly the readers of Smithsonian Magazine are on top of their historical facts, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> huh, but, it's a rare case where the comments are actually worthwhile. <laughs> they were. It was it was relatively polite, but also there was a lot of like, uh, I beg your pardon, you've been uh, mistaken here. But um, <laughs> back to Kellogg. <laughs> He created the substance as a healthy meat alternative for the spa patients staying at his Battle Creek Sanitarium because he believed that meat was a digestive irritant and, what's worse, a sinful sexual stimulant. Oh, Uh, Which he was very much like, no, we don't do that. It's not good for the body. Right. So in practice, he actually preferred almond butter because at the time, apparently, almonds were cheaper than peanuts. That's not the case anymore. But uh, the flavor of peanut butter was stronger and quickly grew more popular. So as early as 1896, good housekeeping was encouraging women at home to make their own peanut butter with their meat grinder, which they also presumably had in the house, and suggested (laughs) pairing the spread with bread because I don't know how else you're going to eat it. (laughs) 
Joseph Lambert, an employee at Kellogg's Sanitarium, who may have been the first person to physically make the peanut butter for the patients at the sanitarium, soon invented machinery to roast and grind the peanuts on a larger scale. He actually launched the Lambert Food Company, selling both pre-made nut butter and the mills to make it. So it became something that you could buy for your home and also something that other peanut butter companies could purchase and start selling their own versions of peanut butter. World War I, though, was the real kick to peanut butter's popularity. Because while not everyone agreed that meat was bad for you, everyone did have to deal with meat rationing. And Mm. at the time, government pamphlets were promoting meatless Mondays to support the war effort. And in their suggestions of substitutes, they put peanuts as a good high-protein alternative. But despite the government's support at home, peanut butter was not sent to soldiers overseas during World War I because of its tendency to separate. I don't know if you eat any of, like, the super fancy peanut butters that do separate. (laughs) That's the kind I have in my house, I freely admit. Yeah. And it's not so bad. You just stir it up. But apparently, like, it spends a month on a boat and the separation is worse, I guess. I don't know. Sure. But in 1921, Joseph Rosefield filed a patent for partial hydrogenation of the naturally occurring oils. And by World War II, peanut butter was a staple of every military commissary. And they note in the article that when expats overseas are like craving peanut butter and they apparently can't get it in all these foreign countries that they're living in, the main place they all head to is the local military base because military commissaries always have peanut butter no matter where they are in the world. Huh. Yeah. So if you're ever abroad and get a craving, that's (laughs) where you can go. (laughs) Rosefield himself went on to found Skippy brand peanut butter, which was apparently the first to introduce crunchy peanut butter as well as wide mouth jars that were easier to use with a knife. And I guess before mm. then they just had like bottles. I don't know. I can't imagine <gasps> a not wide mouth peanut butter. Yeah. Jar. I mean, it seems highly inconvenient. So good on him yeah. for introducing that, I guess. And despite the fact that it is still hard to find worldwide, we are slowly winning the battle for peanut butter supremacy. In 2020, <laughs> sales of peanut butter in the UK surpassed sales of jam for the first time. And the British what? love their jam. Yeah. And that's like, yeah. that, uh, the way they phrased it, I think they mean a combination of all jams. So that's a lot of peanut no. butter for the UK that to be is. purchasing. I mean, it seems like you could easily get it in the UK at the very least. Huh. They don't go into the rise in peanut allergies at all. I guess that hasn't affected the sales. I mean, I freely admit we have peanut allergies in my house and we have both peanut butter and almond butter because the people who can eat the peanut butter are like, I'm not giving that up just because <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this guy can't eat it. We're going to have both. So we have big X's on the lids. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no skull and crossbones no I, i'm not that artistic i'm just like ah, big <laughs> that's the extent of my skills <laughs> next link next link let's keep talking about food atlas obscura and their gastro obscura want to talk about japan's original sushi uh, are you a sushi fan i am i didn't realize there was a previous version of sushi Oh, man. So if you were going to make Japan's original sushi, you would need to age the fish for several months or even years. Oh, dear. I mean, are we talking like in preservative, like salted? Like, mm, okay, because this is presumably before refrigeration (laughs) and raw fish is already a delicate subject for most people. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And you absolutely nailed it. So let's see. The author Clarissa Way takes us to the Japanese city of Wakayama, which is a stone's throw from the ancient castle ruins in the Kumano River. 
There is a 74-year-old restaurant called Toho Chaya that specializes in an ancient form of sushi. And to make this nare sushi, the <laughs> restaurant packs rice inside a salty fish carcass and ages them for months. Huh. The author notes that Toho Chaya has been doing things the old-fashioned way, from making nazarushi to conducting an interview by fax machine. You know, the old-fashioned fax machine. Well, they're consistent, <laughs> you know, at least they keep their... Uh... <laughs> They're stuck in the past exactly. in a variety of ways. That's right. That's right. And the chef and owner, Ikuo Matsubara, notes that since it is made by fermentation, it tastes similar to cheese or yogurt. Ooh. And if that wasn't intense enough, you could, for the equivalent of about 53 US dollars, get a small jar of 30-year-old aged sushi that is so decomposed Texturally, it's more like a thick gruel oh. than a modern-day sushi roll. <laughs> mm, fish paste. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, while some chunks of fish still keep their shape, time and bacteria liquefies the mixture to the point that it can only be used as a condiment. It's sour, it's pungent, it's mildly sweet, and it's normally eaten atop tofu or rice. It was first recorded in Japan in the 8th century, and narizushi is considered a delicacy today because of how long it takes to make, obviously. Sure. And the way it works is the cooks salt the fish, which kills the microbes on the surface and allows salt-tolerant lactic acid bacteria to flourish. Mm -hmm. Then when the fish is packed with rice, the lactic acid bacteria consumes the sugars and produces sour lactic acid. This lowers the pH of the entire dish and keeps it from spoiling. And this same microbial process is used all over the world to make pickles and other fermented foods, as you noted. That's always one of the things that's been fascinating to me is basically every culture, because nobody had refrigeration, has some right. sort of salt-based preserved food. You've got kimchi, you've got yep. sauerkraut, you've got every culture has had to do this, otherwise they starved. Yep. It's obviously a bit of an acquired taste, but it's one that's been popular across Asia from millennia. According to Yoko Isasi, an LA-based Japanese cooking instructor, this form of sushi can be traced back to ancient Southeast Asia between the 3rd and 5th century BC. And wow. there are, like you kind of noted, nare sushi-like dishes all over Southeast Asia and Southern China, exclusively in places where rice is a staple crop. So for example, in Hunan, there's yuja, where carp is fermented with black rice, chili powder, and salt. In the Philippines, there is burong isda, which is fish cured with salt, red yeast rice, and cooked rice. And in Thailand, there's plara, which is river fish preserved with rice bran and salt. And they all look and taste kind of the same. Soft, rotten fish covered with liquefied rice. Yeah, it's <laughs> interesting that the rice is necessary to feed the bacteria. Like, they're there, exactly. but they don't have enough to feed on inside the fish carcass, I guess. Exactly. It's almost kind of like kombucha, where you have to add sugar to the mm -hmm. mix so there's something for the bacteria to eat. I'd try it. I mean, you know, if, yeah. you, if you get me a little jar of 30-year-old fish paste, I'm not saying I'm going to eat a whole meal out of it, but I'll, I'll try it. It'd be like, like I mean, it's, the version of peanut butter. <laughs> it's like you spread it exactly. on something. It's meant as a condiment yeah. anyway. It's something that, you know, has to go on a carrier food. And an interesting tidbit I was unaware of, up until medieval times, people made sushi with fresh fish from the lake. It was lake fish. Hmm. It was only when the capital of Japan moved from Kyoto to Tokyo that making sushi with ocean fish became the norm. Interesting. I remember reading a thing a long time ago about how salmon was actually considered like trash fish in Japan. They were not into right. it at all. And like just ocean fish in general, but especially salmon. They're like, that's disgusting and nobody eats that. And it wasn't until they started to import like really high quality salmon from Alaska where I guess they didn't have pollution problems or something. I don't know. I yeah, shouldn't be talking about I want to say it was Nor No, no, no. I think it was Norway. And I feel like this was an article we already covered. I think it was like salmon was such 
a Norwegian export or something. Mm-hmm. They started to elevate the idea of salmon being used in sushi, and now it's super commonplace, but definitely not a traditional type of fish for sushi. That's right. I think that was uh, a damn interesting article. That's wow. Okay. Yeah. My brain is just <laughs> floating up little tidbits of memory that I can't quite place. It turns out it came from right here. <laughs> <laughs> That's the value we provide to our listeners. Right. Just and little ourselves. earworms and trivia tidbits <laughs> that come up when we're continuing to do the podcast. That's right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from Avir Mitra at WHYY.org, which is a PBS affiliate with a fantastic name. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm a sucker for super gross but cool science. So we're going to talk about placentas. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies in advance, but it was so cool. <laughs> so it actually harkens back to a couple months ago where we talked about egg-laying mammals and the idea that the placenta is just sort of a giant soft internal eggshell That the baby hatches out of at the moment that the mother's water breaks, right? Like, it's still hatching. Mm -hmm. It's just hatching internally. So (laughs) this article actually looks at the moment in evolutionary history when we switched from actual eggshells to placentas and how it could possibly have happened. And the answer is kind of terrifying. So (gasps) first we have to understand what makes the placenta actually very different from an eggshell. The key thing about an eggshell is that it's an impenetrable wall. Right. And all the nutrients Mm -hmm. that the baby animal needs are stored inside it from the get go. That's actually what the yolk is. It's this sort of care package of nutrients that have to last for the entire development, however long that is for the particular animal. Uh Human babies, obviously, we don't have a yolk. We get our nutrients in real time from our mothers, which means the placenta has to be permeable in both directions. It has to let in nutrients and oxygen, Mm -hmm. and it also has to let out carbon dioxide and waste. But This is actually incredibly dangerous because our immune systems are designed to recognize intruders. And another creature's DNA very much counts as a foreign intruder. Yeah. So this is why people who undergo organ transplants have to stay on immune suppressing drugs for the rest of their lives. Right. So Mm -hmm. the placenta has to make sure that the mother and the baby never touch while continually letting some stuff through. Their bloodstreams have to be walled off by a unique type of tissue called syncytiotrophoblast which forms the outer layer of the placenta. And as researcher Kelsey Coulihan notes, there is no other structure like this anywhere else in the body. It's a layer of cells that have fused together in a unique way to form a barrier that we don't see anywhere else in mammal biology. So evolutionary biologists, as evolutionary biologists are wont to do, looked into the genome of the placenta. And what they discovered was that the protein that allows for this fusing action called syncytin doesn't look like a protein that comes from human DNA. It looks more like the kind of substance made by a retrovirus. What? Yeah, of which the most famous example is, of course, HIV. The difference between a regular virus and a retrovirus is that a regular virus enters the cell and hijacks the machinery of that cell to make copies of itself, right? It sort of Uh stays on the factory floor in like a supervisory capacity. But once the immune system has killed the virus, the cell goes back to doing what it was supposed to or else it just dies in the process. But Mm. a retrovirus actually injects its own DNA into the cell's DNA strands, meaning that even if the virus itself is killed, the host is stuck with viral DNA for the rest of its life and can never stop doing what the virus told it to. This is why, of course, HIV is so deadly, right? It stays in you. You can't get rid of it. Right. So the evolutionary biologists have concluded that, yes, in fact, this little piece of human DNA that makes syncytin did not spontaneously arise in humans. 
it was inserted by a retrovirus into the proto-mammal bloodline about 150 to 200 million years ago. I mean, it's I, I don't really know how they've concluded this, but they have definitively concluded this, that fusing cells together is a critical part of virus behavior. And now we have DNA that lets us make a protein that can fuse cells. They're like, that's not Whoa. a coincidence. We were injected with viral DNA at some point in our evolution. That's wild. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, it's like I said, it's a little terrifying. There's viruses that have absolutely <laughs> affected our evolution. You know, yeah. it's scary, but we might just get another sort of placenta development, which could be maybe good. Right. Well, and, and that's what they're talking about is that basically, fundamentally, most of these retroviruses would have been detrimental to their hosts. But somehow the ones who lived got this freebie DNA out of it and managed to sort of repurpose it to their own uses. Because obviously a virus doesn't have a placenta. It doesn't need the syncytin for that. It just right. had this code that taught us how to make syncytin. And then we were like, cool, you know what we can do with that? We can stop laying eggs and start having it inside <laughs> us. Yoink. Yeah, so we're thieves, basically. Um, <laughs> the article is careful to remind us that it wasn't an overnight change, right? So first we got the ability yeah. to fuse the cells. And then over many generations, we found a way to put that fusing ability to good use. And it's not the only example Biologists have found huge chunks of our DNA that they're quite sure are actually remnants of ancient viral infections. And Whoa. as you noted, the process is still ongoing. So when an yeah. HIV positive woman has a baby, it may or may not have an active case of HIV, but it quite possibly has some small piece of the virus's DNA passed onto it because it has fundamentally altered the mother's DNA. So she's going to pass it on to her babies, whatever it is that she's got in there. And, you know, like you said, who knows what that DNA is going to do for us in the future? It may be that right. HIV or another retrovirus, if one comes up, please know we don't need that right now. <laughs> but as they sort of show up in nature and they interact with us, it's impossible for us not to sort of start, you know, evolving in response to what is available to us. Right. So it's not quite alien DNA, but it's, uh, it's pretty close. <laughs> it's a little bit It's scary. still the sci-fi uh, ending opening I was hoping for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know and and if you start thinking about it like you know we're thinking about oh we'll seed mars with some bacteria and we'll make it turn into a livable environment what if something's seeding us man like what if these viruses are being just sort of dropped <laughs> off periodically to guide our evolution in the direction i don't know very creepy oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> everything is connected even the virus that's right but only with a malicious intent <laughs> next link Next link. Well, Hakai Magazine is proud to tell you that we seem to have figured out that salt seems to be the reason why lightning bolts are brighter over the ocean than over land. Huh. Hey, hey. I did not know right? that they were brighter over the ocean, but all right. <laughs> well, marine scientist Mustafa Asfor was exploring this, and he basically made a tiny storm in a box. <laughs> and in doing so, he stumbled on a possible solution to a long-standing mystery why bolts of lightning are brighter over the ocean than they are on land. Mm. So over 90% of lightning bolts strike over the continents, but for lightning that strikes the ocean, it's a lot more intense. Mm. They call them rare super bolts, for example, that have flashes 100 or 1,000 times brighter and more powerful than a regular wow. bolt. Those are far more likely to hit the ocean. So Osfor had set out to investigate how lightning bolts affect water chemistry, but instead discovered that, at least in the lab, lightning light discharges are brighter over salt water than over fresh water or soil. Mm. They were totally surprised. Right. It went backwards. Interesting. 
interesting. Exactly. They believed that something in the thunderstorm controlled the intensity of the flash, something in the cloud. Mm -hmm. But the study showed that what lies beneath has a big effect on brightness. So his storm in a box was pretty low tech. It was just a spark generator, a couple of electrodes, and a beaker of water in a dark wooden cabinet. Mm. And when a flash discharged, it would make a tiny audible crack as the air heated up, and the mini bolts were about a million times less powerful than real lightning, but still created a zap that had the same light profile as a real spark. Hmm. And when they first realized that saltier water seemed to be making brighter sparks, they went to the Dead Sea and brought back some water. And sure enough, that super salty water spurred a super bright spark. Hmm. So, you know, good scientists, they re-ran the experiment multiple times using fresh water, using soil, and samples from the Sea of Galilee, barely salty, the Mediterranean, quite salty, and the Dead Sea, very salty. I like how he's like, eh, we'll just build a couple of electrodes in a, in a wooden box. Not a big deal. Oh, we need more salty water? Time to travel to the Dead Sea. <laughs> like, it feels like there's a disconnect in his funding choices there. Well, it's kind of like how, uh, you know, when you're filming a show and they have like an episode where it's like a dream episode and they're in Hawaii. Y'all really wanted the vacation, That's right. right? That's right. Put all the budget into this one. <laughs> Regardless, it paid off because the results in this experiment clearly showed that the saltier the water, the beefier the bolt. Huh. <laughs> The discharges over the Dead Sea water, which is about 680 times saltier than Galilee water, were nearly 40 times brighter. Mm. Even the flashes over Sea of Galilee water were one and a half times brighter than over wet soil. And so the team's explanation is that in water, salt splits into positive and negative ions that help conduct electricity. And when lightning strikes, the more ions that are present, the more efficiently the electric charge is drained from the cloud. So that swift discharge causes a higher peak current and a brighter flash. Oh, it just sucks the electricity down faster and harder. Yeah, okay. yeah. It gives it kind of like more fuel or incentive to just like really go all out, right? right? right. <laughs> <laughs> so they're thinking this research is a nice step towards showing that salty oceans and seas could be responsible for more intense lighting on average. But obviously, there is a big difference between a small scale lab study where you're making a little thing in a box and actual lightning, right? There's mm -hmm. a whole bunch of other dynamic processes that aren't replicated in that experiment. So last year, they surveyed 2 billion lightning strikes recorded between 2010 and 2018, and they mapped out 8,000 intense superbolts, the vast majority of which hit the ocean. The strongest superbolts were super concentrated in the Mediterranean Sea, with the distribution curving up past Spain and the United Kingdom to Iceland and Norway. And they found smaller hotspots east of Japan, and surprisingly, over the Andes Mountains, the only terrestrial site. Hmm. And what they note is that for such a common phenomenon, lightning holds many mysteries left to untangle. Like we're still trying to figure out whether measures of bolt energy show the same trends as measure of total bolt brightness. Hmm. Salt content, for example, cannot explain the entire map of Super Bowls, but it might, for example, contribute to the hot spot over the salty Mediterranean. And another hint at this research might be how climate change might lead to brighter lightning bolts. Some patches of seawater, like in the North Atlantic, are getting fresher as ice melts, ah. but other, you know, subtropical Pacific regions, they're getting even saltier as evaporation ramps up under hotter air. Right. And obviously, ocean acidification is also adding hydrogen ions to the water. All those extra ions mean climate change might spark <laughs> even more intense lightning. <laughs> 
Hey, that pun was from the author, by the way. I just, I'm just the messenger here. It's a joke because it's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wonder if the dirt under the Andes is like, they're going to find out that's extra salty dirt somehow. That that, like, it's still the same effect. It's just there's some dirt mixed in there as well. Yeah. Or some other rare earth mineral that we need to create disposable iPhones. That's right. As soon as we find it. Opens up a whole new. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're only doing it to reduce the lightning, not to make huge amounts of money on technology. (laughs) Yes, as a benevolent, ecological, global effort to protect everyone. Sure, that sounds consistent with the human brand in 2021. (laughs) The human virus brand. Don't forget, we're not really a human brand anymore. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, Wei is going to be super bummed that he had to miss today because (gasps) we're going to talk about his favorite subject, space law. Space law! Yeah. (laughs) CBC Radio has an article titled, Apollo landing sites now protected by U.S. law, but what about the flags? Oh. Yeah. So the U.S. has just passed a law intended to protect the Apollo moon landing sites from disruption by any nations or private companies working with NASA on the lunar surface. It's sort of the equivalent of a national parks declaration, right? Okay. And it's, again, like all space law, it's a little iffy because, you know, (laughs) nobody else has to follow our rules. Like, it applies to people working with NASA for sure, but uh, it feels a little symbolic. But uh, (laughs) the bill was called the One Small Step to Protect Human Heritage in Space Act. And so, like I said, while it's symbolic in the sense that what other nations do in space is not really under our jurisdiction, there is also the question of what exactly they're meant to be preserving. So it may be symbolic in more ways than one. So there were six Apollo landing sites established between 1969 and 1972. And all of them left certain pieces of equipment and other sort of reverse souvenirs. Like, we've left a lot of trash on the moon. Oh, yeah. In the case of the original moon landing, there's the entire lander itself, including the ladder that Neil Armstrong climbed down and the iconic footprint that his boot left in the lunar dust, which everyone's seen a picture of. So Uh with this in mind, the sites in the bill are not only protected in a two-dimensional sense, they've also been designated as no-fly zones above to prevent any passing rocket exhaust from disturbing anything. But in fact, the sites are almost certainly somewhat disturbed already, both by UV radiation and potential meteor impacts. Most notably, the original American flags left on the moon are at this point going to be bleached out into unrecognizable strips of cloth. What's more, Mm -hmm. we know for a fact that the flag at the Apollo 11 site is no longer standing. Buzz Aldrin reported that the last thing he saw as they took off again was their flag being knocked over by their own rocket's exhaust. (laughs) So it's nobody else's fault, really. And more recent pictures of the spot are a little blurry, but they clearly show there is no shadow from a standing flagpole. So at least one of them is definitely on the ground, which, you know, as symbology goes, nobody likes that. And as the author notes, doubtless there will be those who want to go in there and put a new flag up when we do eventually go back there on a more permanent basis. But to do that, they'd have to disturb the site, including all those iconic footprints and lots of other stuff. So it's a touchy issue. There's a waiver clause in the new act that says the sites can be approached for, quote, Activities of legitimate and significant historical, archaeological, anthropological, scientific, or engineering value, which is a pretty wide swath of declarations. But no one's really sure what that means or how to do it. (laughs) So, you know, it's it's a law that doesn't mean a whole lot, but at least we're thinking about it, I guess. Uh, (laughs) We're 
developing the framework yeah after which when something anything happens we can be like is this what we meant that's right we'll figure it out afterwards (laughs) i will note fiction at least has already started grappling with these questions have you seen the new steve carell show called space force I tried. I'll be honest. I tried and I wanted to, but you know, it was a really difficult thing to come about during, you know, the time that we live in because I was like, oh, incompetent government. Not very funny anymore, is is it? not what I want to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -mm. Well, I I watched all of the first season and one of the major plot points has to do with American and Chinese astronauts on the moon basically desecrating each other's historical landing sites. (laughs) And I honestly, as I was reading this, I was like, I bet whatever lawmaker came up with this saw the show (laughs) and they were basically like this illustrates very clearly what can and probably will happen when we start putting a bunch of people up there and we need to get on this even if it has no teeth it's just a sort of like we've stated that we're not cool with the Chinese doing this thing that they haven't done but we think they might and I totally get what you're saying about like I don't want to watch a show about incompetent people when we have so many incompetent people to look at in our daily lives (laughs) it's just not what I consider entertainment anymore it's just I hope it can be entertaining at some point in the future but even just the trope of like dude in power kind of a dunderhead like right oh, i'm over it i'm right, over it right, right. <laughs> give me some give me some good royal dramas and we'll just stick with that it'll be fine <laughs> yeah funny you say that bridgerton has totally hooked me in so oh, okay i'll check it out it doesn't have any, any incompetent <laughs> rulers in it <laughs> well you know it's the upper crust whatever that's a conversation we can offline that's right <laughs> <laughs> at the very least it's something that we don't have in america so we can look at it and find it entertaining <laughs> there you go there you go so removed from our present reality that i'm like well this is interesting <laughs> <laughs> all right well that is all we have time for we're so glad you've joined us some of the articles on daminteresting.com that we did not have time to get to today include elastic diamond could be used to make leds and lasers knife-wielding squirrel captured on camera in Toronto, and the mystery (laughs) of the world's loneliest penguins. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.